When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Talking to Change, a motivational interviewing podcast. My name is Sebastian Kaplan, and I am based in Winston-Salem, North Carolina in the USA. And as always, I'm joined by my good friend, Glenn Hines from Derry, Northern Ireland. Hello there, Glenn. Hello, Seb. Hello, everybody. We have a uh, more of an international flavor today, uh, as we do from time to time, uh, and we'll introduce our guest shortly. We're excited to hear about um, goings-on in uh, the Caribbean today. Before we do that, Glenn, why don't you help our audience know where they can contact us and find our podcast? So on Twitter, we're at Change Talking. On Instagram, it's Talking to Change Podcast. On Facebook, it's Talking to Change. And for questions or inquiries in relation to the training we offer, it's podcast at glennhines.com. Yes, and, and rates and reviews and suggestions for uh, episodes are always welcome. We uh, continue to get some of those and um, always excited to receive them. So before we introduce our guest, probably makes sense to give a little bit of context. Each year, the MI Trainers, a group called the Mint Motivational Interviewing Network of Trainers, we have a conference or what we call a forum. And this year, the forum was supposed to be last week, actually, in Puerto Rico. We were pretty excited to have a, a site uh, like Puerto Rico. It was historically, our forums have been either in the United States, in the geographic United States of America, or in Europe. And this was the first opportunity to have the main forum in a location that is uh, pretty different from how we've, uh, or where we've had the forums before. And so we thought it'd be a great idea to invite a guest from Puerto Rico in advance of the forum to talk about what MI is like in Puerto Rico and, and sort of the, the cultural ramifications of adapting MI in Spanish and things like that. Unfortunately, because of the pandemic, the Puerto Rico forum was canceled. Not sure about the plans to return to Puerto Rico. Hopefully we will. But uh, we decided to continue with our plan to have our guest from the island of Puerto Rico on to discuss uh, motivational interviewing. So we welcome Gabrielle Ruiz. Gabrielle, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you. I appreciate the invitation and I hope to um, just have fun with you guys here. Yeah, we, we, uh, we are looking forward to it. So very often we, we ask people from the start just to share a little bit about yourself what you do now, um, but also talk a little bit about how you first came to learn about MI, so your early MI story. I started learning MI when I was working in a smoking cessation quitline. So I started in 2006 with my training um, from actually people from MD Anderson in Houston. I was using MI in the quitline and in 2010, I moved to Texas because I was invited by MD Anderson to be part of their team of counselors 
So I started using MI also with other projects, with other behavior changes. From there, I also participated at one point in the training that was provided from Bill and Teresa Moyers in Albuquerque. I think it was in 2011 or maybe early 2012. I'm not 100% sure. And then at some point, I also received a training for coding with um, HETI, which is Health Education and Training Institute in Maine. Um, actually, that training was provided by specifically by Ali Hall, I remember. And then in 2012, I participated in the TNT in Fort Wayne, Indiana with Mint. So I became a Mint member from 2012. I've been always fascinated by the efficacy of using MI with participants with any behavior change. Also, I wanted to mention I've also uh, been working on training in Spanish because I noticed that my implementation was in Spanish and I would always have to translate all these terms and also even in the training that I was provided was in English. So I would have to translate my application of MI. I felt like it was kind of complicated because I was always have to, my mind was always translating, going back and forth. So I became involved with other people that were interested in kind of turning MI into Spanish or translating MI into Spanish and having our own tools so that it would be easier for our application in Spanish. There's so much from what you've already said for us to be curious about, in particular, the relationship in your translation and, and the, the experience of, of using motivation to view in, in another language, other than different from what it was written in. And I guess part of what, what I'm really curious about is what is it that you needed to be done in that journey for, I suppose, to be as effective in Spanish as we know that it is in English? But before we de- delve into that, I'm, I'm, I am curious about that journey that you took, that you started off as a smoking cessation telephone practitioner and you were introduced to motivation. But it sounds like there was something about that because you kept going and you deepened your not your your relationship with motivation and I'm just curious what what was it about MI that made you so interested that that led you to continue to learn and develop them because you you've covered quite a range of the of the aspects of motivation and the motivation and training integrity coding which is quite a specialist tool to to have trained in what was it about MI that took you down that path Well thank you for asking that because I'm actually very excited to talk about it for me because I felt like it was very gratifying that people were finding out that they, they have their own tools to achieve their goals. So imagine people trying to quit smoking. Maybe they would call you after three attempts, maybe four, maybe five, even more attempts, and then figuring out on their own because Oh, obviously, MI, we guide them but, or we facilitate for them to reach their goal, but we don't tell them what to do and all that, you know, we, 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 as we all know. I would find it enjoyable or gratifying, I think is the best word, to listen to them, be so excited or being able to even take even those small steps on their own and have them acknowledge that it's because of their strength and their capabilities. So I definitely saw a difference from using MI 
and not using it before. And I, I kind of fell, fell in love with MI in a sort of sense, because I, I thought that it was very, very effective, at least with smokers that wanted to quit smoking. In particular, the, something that struck you was the experience of somebody who has made maybe multiple attempts in the past to quit smoking that are coming to you now, sounds like over the phone, the appreciation that they have to interact with someone who is giving them, well, not really giving them autonomy, but recognizing the autonomy that they still have, even as somebody who has not succeeded and maybe even framing it rather than someone who has failed a bunch of times. It's more of here they are ready again to face the challenge. And that that was something that was really important for them experientially. And also it sounds like important for you experientially as the provider. And it definitely takes the, you don't feel like you're carrying the person, you know, like before you were trying, oh my gosh, I'm telling this person all these things that they could do and they're not doing it. Or, and you would try to kind of figure out, well, you know, this, even some people might think, you know, well, this person doesn't want to quit because, you know, I'm telling them all that they could do and it's not happening. Even for the practitioner, if we want to talk in general, or the interviewer or counselor, it takes uh, the responsibility out of their hands and makes the person responsible, you know, the, the participant responsible. So even for the practitioner or the counselor, it's even better in that sense. That's how I feel. And I guess it, a lot of the people we've spoken to, and I guess a lot of people listening to this will be on on that journey. Some people will be relieved to hear yourself say, I discovered that my desire to help this person didn't mean that I had to find the answer for them and take responsibility. And very importantly, therefore not get disappointed if they came back and they were still smoking. That pressure perhaps from the agency or from the, from the practitioner themselves is I'm supposed to help this person stop smoking. That means I'm only helping when they stop. And it sounds like you discovered that as Seb has described it there, that them coming back as, and continuing to smoke was that this is where they're at, at on their journey to make a decision about their smoking. And I can join with them wherever that is, whether it's the first, the fifth, the 12th, the 15th time of stopping. You met them in a particular way that, unburdened you from responsibility and it sounds like that in itself was very helpful for the clients that you were speaking to when you then went to Houston and started working on a more a wider range of health behavior changes did you notice a similar interaction and in, with when you were working with people did did you see the the efficacy of the approach translate into other behaviors I did see um, that it was uh, effective with other behaviors as well. What I also want to say is that, as I was saying the other day to another person, is that it doesn't only take the responsibility out of the counselor or the other person that's interviewing, but it also takes the responsibility even from the participant's perspective. So they feel like they own their process. So if something doesn't work, it's not going to be this doctor or this uh, counselor or this social worker told me this, that doesn't work. And it makes it also easier for the participant, you know, using MI makes it easier for the, part, for the participant to be honest because we're also using empathy and this active listening and, and being compassionate. So the client or the participant also feeds off of that if we want to call it that way. 
if the client perceives the interviewer or the clinician as maybe just like really focused on their own particular method or coming across as judgmental of the person, then you can imagine that the other person, that the client would start to question how transparent they need to be or maybe how honest they need to be. Not that that's the only barrier to being transparent. Obviously, the client's histories before ever meeting the MI practitioner would influence that and their other relationships might. But yeah, just a, the sort of empathic nature of MI would likely increase the chance that the client is more honest and forthcoming with how they're doing and how well they're doing, if they had any experiences of smoking again, if in the case of smoking cessation. So Right. So, so you're, you're really tapping into some of the important interpersonal or relational elements that make MI such a successful method. I wonder if we could start shifting gears a bit to talking about MI in Puerto Rico. And many people probably don't know how much MI is used in Puerto Rico or, or how widely known it is in the healthcare community. And granted, you are just one person in a, in a place where there's lots of people that are providing healthcare. So maybe you don't know every single thing about it. But from your perspective, what, what do you know about how, how broadly MI is being used and adopted in the healthcare community? Well, I know that um, at least the quit line, they continue to use MI because they've been trained uh, in the past. And I know they also um, offer supervising, offer supervision, I'm sorry, to the counselors in the quit line. So I know they, they, they probably still do that because they also are believers in that this is, you know, effective in using the quit line. Also, I know that there's a university here that provides certification in um, addictions and also master's degrees, uh, master's degree in addiction. So I know they also provide MI to their students. Those are at least what I know for now. I have provided training in the past. That company that has a quit line, I've provided training in the past. And I've also provided uh, supervision and coaching to uh, those counselors in the project that I worked in the past. So at least that's what I know for now about using MI in Puerto Rico. I don't provide training right now, but I do provide coding and feedback and coaching to some people in English and in Spanish out of Puerto Rico. But I'm also looking forward to, I'm all, all, always looking for the opportunity to provide maybe training or information to anyone in Puerto Rico as well. I just have other responsibilities, but I do remotely provide what I've said before, the coding and, and feedback and coaching to other people. It sounds like the, the, those that you're aware of are not just being introduced to motivation to and it sounds like there's quite a commitment on the part of the agencies that are offering MI to support the practitioners to not just learn it, but also to maintain and deepen their experience and practice of MI and with the, the offering of supervision, coding and, uh, and mentoring. So it sounds like that there is at least a cohort of very well-established MI practitioners and there's a culture within certain agencies to really promote and support the, the use of motivation interviewing in areas of Puerto Rico. I don't know if the people from the university receive coding and feedback or maybe coaching, which I think is super, super important after you receive a training in, in MI because at least in my experience and other experiences, you know, people that I've seen practicing and, and that I've provided coaching to, 
just receiving a training and a motivational interview is not enough because we know that applying it is not that easy because we're so used to something different. So I don't know if they actually have someone coding, but at least the training, you know, and having the, uh, at least learn the spirit of MI, I hope they, they do. But I'm also a, a believer of really having that coding and coaching necessary to make sure that the proficiency of MI is actually there using the MI skills. How about we explore a bit of the cultural implications for people who don't know Puerto Rico, I might be making an assumption here, or I don't want to make assumptions here. Puerto Rico is an island in the Caribbean. It is a territory of the United States, although it's not considered formally a part of the United States of America, one of the 50 states, right? And so it is, it is a rather unique location from a cultural perspective, given that it has influences from lots of places all over the world. Spanish is the primary language. And so maybe you could talk a bit about Puerto Rico as a, as a location and just maybe a bit about how MI fits really well from a cultural perspective. Maybe there's some things about MI that are in the sort of traditional sense that don't maybe fit quite well with Puerto Rico from a cultural standpoint and how you adapt it when you are practicing MI or, or teaching MI. Well, yes, we're a U.S. territory. For some things, we're almost considered like one of the states. In some, some companies, you can get something mailed here, like nothing. But some companies, they think it's international. So it just varies, I guess. We, our first language is definitely Spanish. Our roots are definitely Latin American. So our culture is very, you know, we have a lot of influence from when the Spaniards were here. When we were first received um, our Europeans here. So our, a lot of influences from the Spaniards, also from our indigenous, we can see it in the, in the food, a lot of that. And some words also come from our, um, from our Tainos, which are uh, you know, the native, native people that lived here before the Spaniards came. And also we had a lot of the Caribbean is known for receiving a lot of slaves, unfortunately from Africa. So we have a lot of influence also from Africans, like using plantains in our food. So that's, I think, basically how I can describe our culture. It's very varied. So our culture is not going to be the same as other people from other Latin American countries because our history is very different. But we also have a lot of American influence because we're our U.S. territory. So it's kind of very complex, I guess, our culture. We have a lot of, let's say, with programs and projects and different uh, situations that are going on, we relate a lot to um, Latin America, but then a lot to U.S. background. So lots, lots of different ingredients leading to the experience of being an individual and a community living on the island of Puerto Rico. And, and I guess... Leading on from what Seb was asking, it's just about how and how in what ways do you think this particular and unique blend of culture has received motivation interviewing, and what, if anything, has it had to do with motivation interviewing to add some ingredients, add some of the spice of Puerto Rico to the practice of MA for it to be useful and meaningful for 
the, the inhabitants of Puerto Rico? In a lot of aspects, Latin Americans are, and I'm sure you guys heard about this before, we're used to going to someone, a doctor, a counselor, a social worker, and they're the expert. We're sitting there, we're listening to the expert tell us what to do. But as Puerto Ricans, we're very familiar, you know, we're a little bit more, sometimes we don't call the doctor, doctor something. Sometimes we call them by the first name because even the same doctor says, oh, no, tell me Bob or something. So in that aspect, I don't think it's too far. Not that, you know, not that we're going to be working professionally, but what I mean is that when you use MI, if you let them know from the beginning that, you know, this is going to be a partner relationship, a collaboration relationship. I think it's very effective because of that. I think we're very open to that type of conversation. We, we have a little bit more openness to making that shift into that collaborative style. It sounds like it fits well with a culture and a community that's already quite uh, interpersonally rich and that sort of bases a lot of the social value on connection. MI fits quite naturally there. And even, I guess, what you described there, how it wouldn't be that uncommon to refer to a doctor by their first name. One of the things we talk about in MI, of course, a lot is the partnership between the provider and the client, trying to consider the relationship as a conversation between two experts, as opposed to there being just one expert. And so maybe there's a, a fit there too, that if, again, if there's more of a casual still a respectful relationship, but more of a casual one, that there's already less of that hierarchy that you might find in traditional healthcare settings. Yeah, I think more in, in relationships with, you know, psychologists and other not doctors too much. I think they're still going to be the experts and seem like, you know, they're the ones that, you know, know everything. But I think in other relationships like social workers and counselors and all that, I think it works very well because we're naturally sharers. You can go somewhere. It's like, oh, good morning. How are you? I'm doing fine. And we are we are people that share very easily if you give us the trust and you know the environment too. But I do see now that I'm thinking about it, maybe doctors not that much. You know, if you go to a neurologist or you know a general practitioner, you know, it's not going to be, be that that much. But it would help a little bit maybe for people to share more about their symptoms and all that. So maybe they should consider it a little bit. <laughs> So it seems like in many ways that community is a very important part of a shared identity, that friendliness, the connection, that exchanges, communication is part of what we're doing. What was interesting, even as you were endeavoring to, to describe this relationship, there was almost like a dance move that you were, you were almost doing some uh, Latin dancing. And it just struck me that, you know, that that idea of, of having a relationship with another person is consistent with the one of the metaphors that we use in motivation of of course is that idea of dancing with with the client and it sounds like for an awful lot of people that part of the culture of being puerto rican is that that you're open to that attunement that you that you're actively seeking a connection with the people that you meet not just your close family but everyone you come into contact with is you you are open to a relationship or relating to them and that what motivation interviewing offers the practitioners is that freedom to go back to that process as you described it, which is to to be there, to be helpful, but to be consistent with that 
fluidity in the in the conversation and the trust and the respect that mutual respect from the practitioner and the client about what is it we're here to achieve and what it is I can do for you that you will find helpful and let us both discover what that is in a way that's going to work for you. And I think it could, it could help, and, and I think we know this already, it, it, it would help with the compliancy to treatment because we, the people will be comfortable saying, you know, I'm not taking this medication. It made me feel bad. I haven't been taking it consistently. But then if it's in the other way around, it'll be like, oh, yeah, I'm taking the medication. Yeah, every day, you know, because you don't dare to tell the doctor that you know, you're not taking it. So definitely it helps a lot. You've shared various experiences, whether it was as a clinician or as a trainer, as a coder, even living both in the world of MI in English and MI in Spanish. Because I I believe, if I'm not mistaken, we've now done close to 40 of these uh, episodes, but I I don't believe we've had anyone from a primary Spanish-speaking country or region. And so I wonder if you could share anything about how you adapt to MI in Spanish or, or particular things that MI practitioners in Spanish have to keep in mind that those of us who use it in English may not have to. From the beginning, I felt like I was being trained in English, made it hard for me to translate that knowledge into Spanish. And also even, you know how MI uses a lot of metaphors and it uses the strength and, you know, uh, emphasize the strength and, and the autonomy, but also even thinking about metaphors, these complex reflections, because when you start learning MI, maybe now we don't remember very well because we're, you know, a little bit more advanced or we've been using MI for some time. But when we start using MI, sometimes it's, it's only just trying to concentrate on how to make affirmations, how to reflect, very simple skills. So when I would learn in the training in English, it was like, oh, okay, wow, yeah, that's great. And then when I would practice it in Spanish, I was like, okay, wait a second, this is different. Because you would have to think of different words that were not given as examples in English. And I remember making my own instruments of strength in Spanish or even writing emotions and trying to see what words I can use in complex reflections. Like sadness could be, well, I'm not going to say in Spanish, but sadness could be, you know, frustrated or this and that and trying to come up with these words. And I would have cheat sheets because my brain was going in English and Spanish. I don't know if that makes sense, but that was definitely my brain working all over the place. So I would make my cheat sheets so I could, you know, be more effective at the beginning. And I would explain that to my supervisor at that point. I was like, you know, I'm trying my best. It's very hard. And then she would provide her supervision in English. So I would explain to her, this is hard. This is so hard. So I tried to move to see how I could help other people, not help other people, but, but kind of join forces with other people that also did in mind Spanish. So that's when I started meeting people like Carolina Yañe from New Mexico, Lucia Galeno from Peru. There was also another person from Colombia, France, and, and Pati Juarez, and um, now we have more people like Pilar from Spain. So we tr- we started to join forces and 
and kind of share our experiences in Spanish. But at the beginning, I started, I remember with Lucia, we shared our, you know, our difficulties. So we started translating tools in Spanish that were already, already existed in, in English to Spanish. For example, we translated the, the manual that you use for coding sessions. So we could also have the terms in Spanish. So it would help us also kind of our thought, our thought process be in, in, you know, in Spanish and not in English. If I would explain what happens, it's like people that do translating. You can't just contract a translator, just translate whatever I'm saying in Spanish. You have to have a translator understand what you're talking about before you have that person translating. So that's actually, you know, what happens that your, your brain is, is doing two process, the understanding plus the translation. Actually, we meet once a month now to continue our, our work and, you know, kind of um, join forces and, and share our experiences in Spanish. And the manual that we translated, we shared with a, a lot of the mentees um, that also speak Spanish. Then again, that, that commitment that you identified at the beginning of the process, which was, I, I liked the MI, I liked what it did, and that's what kept me being curious to continue my development of my skills and my knowledge. And, and that is evident again, what you're describing, that that willingness to dedicate yourself to almost like a parallel process of commitment and, de- and, and of a difficult process, which was one, you were learning motivation interviewing. You were actually internalizing the concepts in English and then endeavoring to take it out of that English place into ne- and the Spanish place. And rather than just going, you know what, I'll not bother with that. You've been endeavoring with the support of other people and, and supporting other people to go, how, how do we say this in Spanish? How do we communicate this in Spanish? How do we feel this in Spanish so that when we're with other people that they can get this experience when they're with us? And I, and I guess, again, just that continued curiosity about what have you noticed about how to translate those English feelings into Spanish feelings that are, that are then can be experienced by your clients? I'm just struck by the translation of the experience. The experiences are the same, I, I guess, but we translate them into English. We speak those experiences in English. You learned that in English, now you translate that. And I'm just wondering what that bridge, how do you, what, what was the process, I guess, I'm exploring is how do you express motivation interviewing in Spanish? I think it's the, the process of practicing that I noticed what was happening. So it's uh, very experiential. I just noticed, you know, this is not, it, sh- it should be easier. Not, it shouldn't have to be such a struggle. Plus my training was so good from, you know, these people that were training me in English. I wanted also to have other people have that better opportunity of having a good trainer in Spanish as well. So I think it's more experiential and then wanting to, you know, share um, also with others to have a better experience. Yes, actually, it's very helpful for you to hear you say that because I guess no matter what language someone is practicing MA, what it sounds like you're encouraging us to do is to get to a place where we have our, ourselves experienced whatever this thing MA is or that when you're experiencing open-ended question, what happens when you hear an affirmation? How do you experience that when you experience a reflective listening statement? 
what's the experience rather than just what's what do you think or it's written in a book you do it this way again it's back to that I, I go back to the metaphor of the dance that it's you you can follow the steps one two three one two three one two three but it's getting to the place where you're actually feeling the music and you're moving in in concert with the person that you're with and it takes time and it sounds like that's the effort it's getting to the place where it is a bit concrete to begin with but eventually becomes a bit more natural and then you have an ability to express it with flair in a way that connects to other people so it's not just here's an idea it's here's an experience when you're with me as I talk to you about MI or I use MI when I'm with you. I think that's an excellent example, Glenn, because it's like putting in a book, these are the steps to dance salsa, but then practicing it is very different. Definitely, that's an excellent example. I guess it's about, it's about that search for the music that, that, that helps us to begin to move more fluidly and and to give ourselves time, as you said it yourself, as and I know myself, as I as I when I was introduced to motivation viewing, you know, this idea of affirmations, and I love the idea of cheat sheets. I remember when I was introduced to MI that I would sit my laptop at the time below the desk to my left when my client was at my right. And sometimes I would just I would just have a list of affirmations or a list of reflective listening st- stems that I was trying to practice. And I would just gently turn my head to one side, remind myself, and then see if I could use them in the conversation just to begin to integrate the language into my conversations. And before we came on air, we talked about uh, myself and Lisa and Seb planning to go to South America in two years' time. And, you know, I'm going to need to learn Spanish to go there. So I guess when I first start learning Spanish, it's going to feel very strange and concrete for me speaking and listen to myself speak in Spanish with a dairy accent. And I suppose what I will need to do is continue to feel the discomfort of it sounding wrong or effortful and, and trust that at some point it will become a little more fluid and that shift from fluency to mastery that David Rosengren talks about. So again, it's just to offer that guidance and support to anybody who's who started or just recently started their journey in motivation event. you know that awkwardness that you're feeling is perfectly natural as Gabriel has identified if you can get someone who, who has that experience to offer you some coaching and support then that in itself will become a lot easier for you and with time and I've heard um, also experiences from other people that like recently I'm, I'm starting to train someone that has been trained in English so I've heard her experience telling me like, wow, what you're telling me now makes sense. It wasn't making sense before because now I'm training her in Spanish. It took me back to how I started. It makes definitely more sense when you try to have that thought process in Spanish. I call it sometimes those micro skills. I don't know if this makes sense, but it makes sense for me. I call like when we start learning how to do the um, open questions and the ORs, which are open questions, affirmations, reflections, and summaries. So we start there. So I call those the micro skills because first we have to start those micro skills, those you know little, maybe simpler skills. And then we can start focusing on change talk and, and take, because we're so concentrated on doing open questions and, you know, responding with affirmations, we can't even concentrate too much on focusing on change. 
So I try to let them know like, okay, so let's focus on the micro skills first. And then we're ready for the macro skills, which is focusing on change talk and, you know, dancing with the client. It's like focusing on what is happening internal to the practitioner and how they're communicating to the client using these micro skills. And then once, maybe once the practitioner or the learner becomes comfortable enough with using reflections and affirmations and these kinds of things, then they can start to pay more attention to the language of change talk or sustain talk or whatever it might be. And then they can more strategically use the skills that they are now becoming more comfortable with and kind of furthering the conversation in a more strategic way. And that's a process then that does go across the languages, English and Spanish. Those are the, the, that, I guess, strategy of teaching MI is one that would be familiar to English language teachers and learners. And it sounds like same for you teaching it in Spanish. Most definitely. We're not leaving behind that, we, you know, we're recognizing if the person is ambivalent or not, or, you know, if there is some change talk, but still I know that at the beginning, it's so, I don't want to say hard, but so we're so concentrated on, you know, using those skills that it's a little bit harder for them to concentrate if there's, you know, change talk or not and all that. I try to let them know that, you know, let's focus more on those and then we'll focus more on the other ones, not leaving the other skills behind, but still kind of flowing, <laughs> going with the flow. It sounds like the, the spirit of motivation, Vian, the thing that we call the spirit of motivation, Vian, is familiar to Spanish-speaking individuals as well. It's just they describe it in Spanish in different ways. But again, what it is, is it's that this is not the spirit of motivation. In motivation, we describe this thing as the spirit of motivation event itself, it's by itself. And it sounds like you, rec- you have it in Puerto Rico. We have it in Northern Ireland. You have it in North Carolina. And I guess that whoever's listening to this, whatever part of the world is, that you recognize this as what we describe as the spirit of motivation event existed before we put words to it. And it's the benefit of understanding that, that we then tap into that relationship, that energy, that meaning, that human encounter and dance or sing or whatever way it is that, that you relate to each other in whatever part of the world you're in, but it has meaning and it's just these words describe it in this way. When, when you think about your journey and your practice of MA and, you know, thinking about that, you know, this, this is, people listen to this podcast from all around the world. And what is it that you have, you have recognized or you notice about the use of motivation either in Spanish or in Latin America that, you know, might be interesting to other people that about the uniqueness of what it is, you know, or noticing that's, that might be interesting to other people from around the world. I could say that sometimes what people worry about is that people expect you to be the expert. So it sounds very, it doesn't sound familiar to use these, these, this type of approach. <laughs> I want to say I'm, my brain is going in Spanish. So I'm, I'm thinking about the perfect word in Spanish and then it just stays there as they approach MI for lack of a better word, they feel like, well, I don't know if the person is going to feel like I'm not really helping them or they're going to feel like I'm just uh, letting them be, or 
uh, how am I supposed to help them if I'm not giving them suggestions or, or recommendations? It takes time for people to adapt to this idea. Some people, you know, like it from the beginning, but some people just take time to adapt to the idea. As I was explaining the other day, you don't have to not give this person um, recommendations or suggestions. You just give it to them in a, in a different way. You have them think of it as a, as a choice. These are things that might work. It might not work for you, but these are things that generally work for other people. So if you like, I can give you these ideas. Da, 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 da. And then, you know, what do you think we're, will work for you? So that's where the, I don't want to say contract, but maybe that's where the person will be, you know, holding themselves responsible about saying, well, I'm going to try this and that. Let me see if that, and then you can tell them, well, let's see if that works. If it's something that you have to tell them that they have to do, then tell them that they, you know, this is part of the program. So I'm going to have to, you know, let you know, this is something that we have to do. And so it's still, you're not going to, it doesn't mean that you're going to not be the expert. You know, you are the expert. You went to college and you do know what they need, but you're just having them be more, more responsible and having them think that they're the ones that are taking action, not you. Some people have uh, struggled with that at the beginning, especially because here, at least here in Puerto Rico, uh, people focus more on CBT, which is um, cognitive behavioral therapy. So that's just like, you know, this is what's happening. You're going to have to do this and that. So it takes people time to or make that shift from CBT to using MI or combining with MI some way. You're citing a few things already that are relevant cross-culturally or at least consistent cross-culturally. One is as an MI learner, particularly a learner that has been uh, more familiar with a more directive approach like CBT, it can feel a bit unnerving perhaps to use a method that doesn't involve a lot of advice giving, information giving. And it maybe for some, it takes a while for them to sort of become more confident that providing the space where the patient or the client has more autonomy is actually effective. And then from a client perspective, the important, I guess, human phenomenon of if we say ourselves that we are going to make a change, we're more likely to carry it out than somebody else outside of us telling us that we have to make the change. And that's something that obviously is pretty well known across our MI community, but, but it's interesting to hear that, that that is consistent across cultures. I sometimes tell them, rec- just have help them recognize that they have their own tools. The participant has their own tools, help them recognize it. That's part of our, our work because it's even easier that way. It's like telling someone, you know, oh, it's better to do exercise in the morning. I'm not a morning person. You tell me to do exercise in the morning. I'm like, no way. That's not going to work for me. So what works for me doesn't work for, you know, someone else. So by having options, the person can say, well, yeah, I, I'll do exercise, but I'd rather do it in the afternoon before eating or before dinner. And that way I feel better because then I take a shower and I don't have to, you know, get, wake up early, so early in the morning. So definitely it's better for the client to this or the, you know, the participant to discover their own tools because they'll be, they'll be more compliant. I suppose the person's commitment 
to moving forward, or, or more specifically for us as practitioners to recognize, are we committed to a specific path to the outcome or are we willing to identify where the outcome is and explore how might you choose to get there? If, if you want to get fit, what path would you like to follow rather than going, you must do this, this and this if you're going to get fit? And it sounds like you're, you're still trying to get to the same place. You, how you're getting there is a bit more back to that, as you describe it, the process. Most definitely. And, and that's where it's gratifying to have the participant, you know, learn about themselves or learn what help, what works for them. And maybe even, you know, might, it might work. So that's where it's gratifying that you help that person discover what works for them. Well, Gabrielle, as we uh, start winding things down for our conversation today, which has uh, really been wonderful, we always ask our guests if they would want to share something that they have an interest that's percolating something either professional or personal, could be related to MI, but it might not, that you'd like to share with our listeners. If you weren't on our podcast now, if you were doing something that you really enjoyed, what would you be doing? Um, well, right now, because we're in quarantine, it's very limited. Usually I like to walk with my daughter near the beach sometimes or go to the beach. I don't go that much as before, but we're not doing that lately. So I think I would be walking near the beach. Sometimes my daughter and I like to cook different recipes. I figure out how to do mofongo the other day, which is something that usually I eat at a restaurant. But because I'm avoiding restaurants, I just looked it up and I made it. It wasn't bad. I think I've done it twice now. Things like French onion soup that I love to ask for in a restaurant. I've been making them. Now I've made it like three or four times. Actually, it's kind of a stress reliever sometimes. I've made uh, banana bread, which I've never made before, and things like that. So I've been doing that. Having been to Puerto Rico maybe seven years ago, I, I can attest to mafungo as something that really seems to be uniquely Puerto Rican and really quite delicious. So I imagine most people listening have no idea what mafungo is. Without a lengthy description, what, what, how would you describe it? Well, it's very savory. So it has garlic in it. So if you like garlic, you're going to like mofongo. Some people think it's kind of dry because it's made out of plantains. So plantain is like a, it's like a banana, but it's, it's larger. And I think it's harder sometimes. I think it's harder also. So what you do is that you cut it in pieces, you fry it. Yes, this is fried. And then you mash it and you add garlic in it, salt, olive oil, and you mash it again all together. And you can eat it as a side dish on its own. You put it in a little bowl and you put a, you know, you form it, put it in your plate like a side dish, or you can make a little bigger one, make a hole in it and put meat in it or shrimp, chicken and cook it and, and put some, put it in it. So it's very good. You could clearly see the, the the energy and the passion and excitement in in as you were describing what it what is you you've been learning, and I guess a lot of other people will be identifying it. How many new things that they have learned as a direct consequence of lockdown and quarantine uh, all over the world and discovering hidden talents. Potentially, one of the 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 secondary consequences of this pandemic has been that some of the light has come out from under our own bushel. 
and we're start to discover things about ourselves. So we really appreciate you sharing that with us. What we also do as well, Gabrielle, is is that if our audience are interested in anything about that you've described or want to have a conversation with you, if they can contact you afterwards, how would they do that? Of course. They can contact contact me at my email, um, which is G T U D O nine six at gmail.com. I'll spell it out just in case. So it's G as in Gabrielle, T as in Thomas, U as in, I don't know, Uruguay, um, D as in David, and O as in Oscar, 96 at gmail.com. Well, great. Uh, Gabrielle, thank you for, uh, for joining us. It's been a real pleasure learning more about, certainly about you, and, but also about MI in Puerto Rico and, and just thinking about the process of applying MI in Spanish or, or learning or taking something that you've learned in English and then sort of changing it into, into mm. the Spanish language. So uh, really wonderful uh, to have met you and to have this conversation today. Well, thank you for the invitation. It's been wonderful. Glenn, before we sign off, maybe another rundown of social media in case people miss it at the beginning. Twitter is Change Talking. Instagram is Talking to Change Podcast. Facebook is talking to change and for conversations with myself or Seb or queries about training, it's podcast.glenhines.com. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each, then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.